Welcome to Picked Voices, an interview series featuring thinkers and doers associated with the Paris Institute for Critical Thinking. In these pandemic days, when we've had to shut our physical doors to the public, we remain committed to supporting the Picked community through our online outreach. We reject online teaching since we believe that critical and creative thinking best happens face to face, but we hope that our podcasts, social media campaigns, and other online offerings will help bridge the gap until we can welcome you in person at one of our courses once again. My name is David Seven Sayers, and today we will talk mostly about water. People often take water for granted, but it's one of the most important substances on the planet. It is in every living thing. The human adult body is comprised of 60% water, and like most living organisms, it cannot survive without water. However, along with being a life-giving substance, water also has been associated with negative things such as disease, draft, deprivation, natural disasters, and human conflict. In 1870, during the Franco-Prussian War, Paris was under siege. Residents trapped in the city suffered terribly from cold, starvation, disease, and constant bombing. Much of the city's water supply system was damaged during the relentless artillery shelling of the war and during the civil disturbances of the commune period which immediately followed. Many were left without access to affordable, clean drinking water. To address the issue, Paris installed its first public drinking water fountains made possible by a donation from a wealthy Englishman. This public-private effort proved to be a remarkable way to address an essential human need in a holistic manner. Now, today, we are in an era, again, where Paris feels under siege. And once the coronavirus pandemic is over, there are sure to be pressing human needs that have emerged as a result of this crisis. With us today is Barbara Lambesis, co-founder of the Society of the Wallace Fountains here in Paris. Barbara resides mostly in Phoenix, Arizona in the U.S., but she spends part of each year in Paris, and thanks to her involvement with the Society, she has become quite an expert on the city's famous Wallace Fountains. Today, she will be talking with us about the fountains' profound importance, as well as how they might serve as a model for finding solutions to human needs stemming from the COVID-19 pandemic. Barbara, thank you for joining us today. Thank you, David. It's a pleasure to be with you. Uh, I want to tell you and the audience that I suffer a bit from allergies, and here in Phoenix, it's allergy season. Uh, (laughs) If I uh, cough a little bit or need to clear my voice or need to get a drink of water, please excuse me. It's just uh, the symptoms of the time. Absolutely, Barbara. No problem at all. So I want to start you off right away with our first question, which is basically to uh, give us a little bit of the background, the historical background, the story behind the drinking fountains, behind the Wallace Fountains. Well, thank you, David. Again, uh, water, of course, as you mentioned, is the essence of all human life on Earth. And Paris, which was settled, uh, you know, some 2,000 years ago, like many great cities, is located on a freshwater river. And that river provided access to water for human and domestic animal consumption, agriculture, and transportation and trading. So by the year, uh, by the 17th century, the small community started on an island in the middle of the river, became Paris, the capital of Europe, and 
soon some would call it the queen of the world. Um, now, Paris uh, was the leader at that time and a trendsetter in style and fashion. Uh, yeah. People came to Paris, yes, from all over the world to see what was going on, uh, to see what the latest fashion was and furnishings and innovations, because it was all sort of happening in Paris. Most people don't uh, know that Paris was also the first European city to have sidewalks, designated pedestrian pathways. And these sidewalks, along with the wide bridges and the public parks and the boulevards, got everyone, including the elite social classes, walking the streets for the pleasure of it. Now, no one could see uh, what a fashionable lady and gentleman were wearing if they were stuck in their carriages. So strolling on the sidewalks became a way to display one's style and one's fashion. So it was sort of the place to see and be seen. Uh, but the interesting thing about the sidewalks was that they, the, the sidewalks were probably the first and only real social leveler in Paris. And that was because all had access to the sidewalks and everyone who used them had to exhibit a certain level of tolerance uh, for those that were outside of their class. The sidewalks had beggars and pickpockets, peddlers, the elite, the poor, the working class, the homeless. They all shared the sidewalks, much as they still do today in Paris. But by 1870, Paris found itself under siege, uh, which is similar, I think, but far worse to what today's lockdown is. Because, you know, citizens were cut off, they were isolated, and they were suffering from destruction and deprivation and despair. And along comes Richard Wallace to the rescue. Now, who was Richard Wallace? Richard Wallace was born in, uh, in London, uh, but he, he resided almost all of his life, most of his adult life up to this time, in Paris, uh, being raised in the home of an English-titled family. Uh, he was thought to be the illegitimate son of the fourth Marquess of Hartford, a prominent, very wealthy English family. Uh, and he was living with them in Paris, and he was working as a, um, he was working as a, uh, a secretary, uh, a, a, an agent, and an art dealer for the fourth Marquess of Hartford. Mm -hmm. Now, the fourth Marquess, Marquess never in his lifetime ever acknowledged that Richard Wallace was his son, but everyone uh, contends to this day that he, Richard Wallace, was the illegitimate son of the fourth Marquess, although he himself never said that uh, in his lifetime, or never said he believed that in his lifetime. And here's where fate steps in. In August of uh, 1870, uh, the fourth Marquess dies, and shockingly, he leaves most of his vast wealth to Richard Wallace. And everybody was very surprised, include Richard, including Richard Wallace himself. And this turns out to be great good fortune for the poor of Paris, because within three weeks, it was Paris was under siege and beginning to suffer terrible times. Richard Wallace was always a kind and generous man with great sympathy for the hardships of the poor, even prior to this period. But now, uh, having inherited all this money, he had re money and resources which to play a very important role during the siege. 
So Richard Wallace gets back on the sidewalks and starts walking from district town hall to district town hall, leaving behind a large envelope stuffed with banknotes and the instructions that they should that the money should be dispersed to the poor so that they could buy food and fuel and clothing and health care. Because, uh, you know, like in most crises, whether they're man-made or whether they're natural, the, the poor tend to be the ones who suffer the most during that time. He also set up uh, field hospitals, both for the French and the British nationals uh, stranded in uh, Paris. And within four months, he gave away the enormous sum of 2.5 million francs to aid. Yeah, it's a lot of money uh, to uh, aid the poor and to alleviate suffering. And the public press, you know, he became sort of the town hero, the city hero. And the public press dubbed him as the providence of the poor. And even after uh, the siege was over and the commune period ended, uh, his generosity and aid continued. Uh, now, during this uh, commune yeah. period, yeah. during the siege, there was this tremendous dis, uh, destruction to the water supply system. And even before the siege, you know, new engineering methods were improving how to deliver water uh, to the, to the city, and they were trying to make a transition uh, to providing running water into the buildings. But like all public works programs, you know, local politics and social injustice usually plays a role in in this process, uh, in this this case, in the delivery of clean water to the Prussians. And the poor were again left behind because they always, they they went to the uh, rich neighborhoods to uh, put the running water in because it was going to be now on subscription, not free. In the past, people had to take their buckets and their containers down to a uh, a water uh, spout, a water spigot, a fillet, take it back to their house. I mean, it was a just gathering water for the day was a big process. Uh, but getting water, running water into the houses, which was now what was, was happening, running water into buildings, uh, it was going to make that very much easier. But what happened, again, is that in the poor neighborhoods, this whole process, again, disrupted by damage to the existing system, from the from the war uh, and the siege, uh, the poor neighborhoods were without water because they turned off the local water spigots as well. So Wallace proposes to donate drinking fountains if the city would install them uh, while this water system was being restored. So and this is significant significant because it's one of the first public-private international efforts to deal with meeting human needs, and in this case, the need for clean drinking water. Yeah. I mean, this is uh, the the process that you're describing of um, a social leveling that comes about because of infrastructural developments like the sidewalks and the, the fact that uh, social inequalities and social injustices uh, find perhaps uh, you know their first manifestation immediately uh, uh, um, by uh, 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 damage uh, to this infrastructure or in situations where this infrastructure doesn't work properly. I mean that is something that we saw uh, that you described very well how it happened back then, and we can see this exact same thing happening today. Wouldn't you agree? When we look at uh, situations, for instance, where we 
hear about cities like New York where um, uh, different uh, neighborhoods are affected differently by the coronavirus depending on uh, uh, depending on uh, the 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 solidity of their infrastructure depending on the uh, uh, on the social services that are provided and that of course in turn depending on the levels of wealth uh, uh, wealth inequality depending on ethnic uh, uh, inequalities ethnic difference etc etc so this is a process um, that we see uh, playing out in the exact same fashion uh, today well but I mean you know today uh, what we've seen uh, what we see a lot of people do a lot of rich people do uh, a lot of billionaires do is ask uh, governments for bailouts right I mean for example we we look at the case of Richard Branson in the UK who doesn't even pay taxes in the UK but is asking for massive bailouts for his airline industries for his airline companies or uh, uh, profiteering in a in a in a way that seems absolutely obscene like for instance the the way that Jeff Bezos the the founder and CEO of Amazon has been able to basically multiply his wealth uh, 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 thanks to uh, thanks to um, the supply problems the, 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 uh, that have uh, that have been occasioned uh, by the by the coronavirus uh, again by the crisis. Um, in contrast, maybe in stark contrast to the sort of selfish, rather kind of uh, uh, self-centered behavior um, um, uh, uh, that we see a lot of public wealthy figures um, display today, Richard Wallace comes across as somebody who was really sort of standing up to the challenges of his time and uh, uh, basically coming together, uh, working together with the state and with the public in order to improve the situation uh, for everybody. Uh, surely a, a fantastic uh, role model uh, today. So, but, uh, so, so, so I would ask you at this point to maybe tell us a little bit more about Richard Wallace in terms of what exactly motivated him, in your opinion, uh, to donate these fountains. Well, of course, there was the practical side of things, you know, uh, Richard Wallace, uh, because he got out on the sidewalks and walked around and to, uh, to disperse his money uh, throughout all of Paris to help the, the, the needy and the poor during this time, he witnessed uh, this great suffering that the siege uh, prevailed on the people. Uh, and he saw the social injustices uh, of the poor having to struggle even harder. Uh, money talks. It always has. It always will. So uh, even with public services, which are supposed to be for everyone, we, we, we have seen in the past that uh, the, the rich tend to get them first and get everything done for them first. And then it sort of trickles down the, the social pecking uh, order, uh, and the poor are the last to, to be taken care of uh, with regard to even infrastructure. Uh, and so we, uh, Richard Wallace saw this, and he saw the suffering. Running water was not, not to all the uh, in the buildings at all at, at this time, to all of the buildings. It, it wasn't in place, and the water spigots were, that were public were being t uh, turned off. So poor neighborhoods lacked access to affordable clean water. Uh, what was available to them was delivered on carts, uh, in buckets, and that water was drawn, drawn from the Seine, which at that time was not clean water because much of the sewer, system, uh, sewer um, discharge and uh, the cleaning of the streets, all that water uh, flushed into the, into the Seine. So if you bought that water, which was now very expensive, coming to you on a cart, uh, 
in a poor neighborhood and you drank that water, you were very apt to get sick from it. So it was expensive and it wasn't safe. Uh, and there were great health consequences to that. Uh, so what did people do? They couldn't get affordable, clean water. Uh, they turned to beer and wine because it was cheaper and they thought far safer for them to hydrate on beer and wine than it was to drink the dirty, contaminated water. And as a result of that, you know, there was not only health consequences because it was observed that even mothers at that time were taking bread and dipping it in wine and feeding their little toddlers um, uh, this wine-soaked bread. Uh, you can imagine that there, with that kind of diet, uh, there's their human development and growth as a child, which is so very, very important uh, for their later years, the health in their later years, uh, we, you know, was uh, appalling. Uh, moreover, by drinking beer and wine instead of water, uh, there was a great deal of alcoholism among the poor and the working class. And alcoholism, as we all know, especially in poor neighborhoods, leads to all other kinds of detrimental social uh, behavior. Um, so Wallace saw it almost a moral duty to try to prevent alcoholism, to, to provide to prevent the, the uh health consequences of their situation and to um, try to give them access to clean water. Now, from a psychological standpoint, there probably were other motivations uh, for Richard Wallace to do this. And one of them, uh, I believe, was that he was trying to atone for the sins of his father and his grandfather. I think in his heart, he really knew that he was uh, the son of the fourth Marquess and the and the grandson of the third Marquess, two very rich, wealthy gentlemen who were um, seen to be selfish, uh, pleasure-seeking, uh, non-community spirit-minded. Uh, they didn't do anything uh, for the common good or for their country, for that matter. Um, and they had a very bad reputation as a result of it. They were one of the most enormously wealthy families uh, in England, in the United uh, Kingdom. And so I think that Richard Wallace was trying to, in some way, restore some honor to the Hartford name uh, and to his, and to what I think he believed was his, uh, his lineage. So that was part of it. The other, uh, another notion might have been that uh, uh, he was uh, seeking to uh, be seen and recognized as an English gentleman. During the Victorian period, there was this notion that uh, there's the responsibilities, uh, that, that there were responsibilities for being an English gentleman, a titled person. And that with privilege came responsibility to family and to church and to the country and to mankind. And I think aspired to be recognized as an English gentleman. So he tried to live up to the standards that were expected of one with service uh, and with uh, commitment to his country, his church, his family, and to mankind. And the other um, aspect here that I'd like to just touch very briefly on is the uh, that when he had been so generous and so life-saving and so supportive of the... Uh, the, the residents in Paris during the siege and the commune that came after it, uh, he received a great deal of honors. The uh, French government uh, awarded him the Legion of Honor, 
and Queen Victoria for his work on saving the British nationals who were in Paris, uh, made him a baronet. So he received some very uh, important uh, acknowledgments and rewards for his effort. And I think he began to see that philanthropy could be used uh, as a social stepping stone and, and that would give him access to the social elite and help him to become recognized and seen as the uh, as an English a gentleman that he thought uh, really would have been his rightful place had he not been illegitimately born. Right, right. So, so I, I really do believe that. I mean, this is a this is such a fascinating story, and I really do believe that there are a lot of parallels to be drawn uh, to what's going on today. I mean, uh, I, I think maybe in today's sort of social. Uh, uh, um, constellations, uh, social social hierarchies, um, uh, wealth, uh, more than anything else, has become the sort of main metric by which all kinds of value is measured. And that doesn't just include uh, basically a person's net worth or something like that, but also other kinds of sort of social uh, uh, value indicators, social uh, ascriptions of, 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 of value to a person. They also happen on the basis of wealth, so that a person who is wealthy um, feels sort of basically vindicated in society just by the fact of being wealthy, rather than by some other metric, as you were saying, for instance, honors of the state or the status, the social status of a gentleman or something like that. So, so this is a sort of a you know, um, it, it just it just it just seems to me uh, to be a very uh, 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 sort of important uh, reminder of uh, um, basing a society, so uh, that, that a society needs to be based on more than a hierarchy that is simply arranged by people's wealth, but also something that includes their actions and something that includes uh, an assessment of their character as based on their actions in the public sphere. So I think, again, here, um, uh, Richard Wallace really speaks to the times. But um, moving beyond the person of Richard Wallace, um, and coming back to the to the to the actual physical objects that were the Wallace fountains, um, you have insisted repeatedly. I mean, you know, I've seen you talk about this topic uh, uh, on on various occasions that the Wallace fountains were not just any um, physical objects. They were special. They were they were unique. And, uh, and, and, and there were a lot of factors that went into, the, into making them special and into making them so unique. So what was Wallace's vision for the fountains? And why, they, why were they such a unique solution to, to, the, to the human needs uh, following the siege and the, the era of the commune? Well, I think from the very inception uh, of, the, of the fountains, which were, of course, a, supposed to be a way to, to get uh, free, clean drinking water to people who need, needed it, I think from the inception, Wallace um, wanted them to be more than a water spigot. Uh, he was an art connoisseur. He had an interest in the Renaissance and in allegory and in the classics, mostly self-taught, by the way. Uh, and, and he had this bigger vision for the fountains beyond just the practical function of delivering fresh water to quench thirst. First, the fountains were to be on the sidewalks and in small public places so that they would be have access to all. Rich and poor could go to the fountains and get a drink. And so this sort of incorporates the philosophy, which I think he held to very carefully, of egalitarianism. 
uh, that it, it, certain things should be accessible to all people, and certainly the, the essential life-giving, life-sustaining access to water was one of them. Uh, in building these fountains, and remember that they're, they're almost nine feet tall, they're, they're, they're big. Uh, he wanted them to be of monumental size and to be beautiful. But he wanted them also to be able to blend into the environment. He wanted them to be visually appealing to people. You know, just as we put art in, a, in, a, in a, our rooms, uh, whether they be public buildings or in our residences, to um, change and enhance and beautify the atmosphere of uh, the inside, uh, he wanted that same thing to happen with, the, with these fountains, that they would be enhancing their environment and beautifying the environment in which they were placed. Another thing that was very interesting is technology and industrial advancement at the time really paved the way for making the fountains possible. France had uh, invented a few years prior uh, a new decorative cast iron process, and this made manufacturing of these very large, very intricately designed uh, fountains to be mass-produced. Uh, if they had to have been individually handcrafted, they would have been so unaffordable, they would not be there today. Uh, but because they were, uh, because of this new uh, manufacturing process, uh, the, these new discoveries of industrialization, uh, the uh, fountains became affordable and possible. Now, the, the primary reason, if we go back to why Paris needed these drinking fountains, was one of hygiene. Um, people were getting people who were not didn't have access to clean water were drinking contaminated water. Uh, were getting sick from that. Uh, so how uh, do you make sure that the water that comes from the fountains are, is going to be clean and potable? So that that was part of their design as well. And what they came up with was that there would be this steady, continuous stream of water that would flow from the very top of the dome on top of the, uh, the fountain. Uh, and because it would be continuously flowing, the water could not stagnate and would not become contaminated. So this would assure that if you got water from the fountains, it was going to be clean and potable. The other thing is, is that Richard Wallace wanted these fountains only to be for humans. So part of the design was to uh, make sure that horses uh, and dogs uh, could not drink from the fountains. So the steady stream of water came from the top up on the dome and it flowed into a, ba a basin that was raised way up on the fountains. And this meant that dogs couldn't have access and horses couldn't get to it either because of the design of the caryatids around it. Attached to these fountains were two drinking tin drinking cups or goblets as they were referred to and they were on a chain so that they were chained to the fountain and if you were thirsty and passing a fountain you would stop you'd fill up uh, the little cup take a drink and be on your way and there was a tradition among most of the users to leave the cup under the stream of water so it could be rinsed and uh, cleansed to the extent it could now 80 years after the first ones appeared on the street, and, and in 1952, uh, the drinking cups were removed for hygienic reasons. Uh, the, the, the health department of Paris at the time uh, decided that that was not a good thing 
to have a common drinking cup. So those tins or tin cups were removed. And now people have to get uh, use a water bottle or some other kind of container uh, that they have with them to, to get a drink. So there was this, this uh, uh, commitment of the fountains uh, being a, a clean source of water and a safe source of water. Richard Wallace also uh, wanted the fountains to be inspirational and to be symbolic. Uh, again, going back to his interest in art and his interest in um, making things beautiful and making art speak to people. So he himself sketched what these fountains originally were going to look like. And then he gave those sketches to a noted artist of the time, Charles Leverg, who uh, created the final sculptures, uh, uh, sculpture, uh, which uh, would become uh, the model for the fountain. Richard Wallace believed very strongly that art could educate and expand knowledge and that everyone would benefit, especially skilled artisans and the general public, if they were exposed to art. So he wanted the fountains themselves to be works of art so that, that, that they would inspire good design in ordinary things. And of course, they were beautiful and artistic and also symbolic. Uh, and he wanted the, the symbolism of the fountains to inspire the human spirit. And one of the ways he did that was by using four caryatids. And uh, just to remind uh, you or others that a caryatid is a uh, classic Greco-Roman female figure that is used as a column to hold up domes and, and tablatures in architecture. Well, he created these small um, caryatids to hold up the, the dome of the fountain, and they were uh, symbols of human virtue. One caryatid represented kindness, the other was generosity, one was simplicity, and the final one, of course, was sobriety. So Richard Wallace had recognized the complexity of the human condition and realized to address a specific human need, the solution should also speak to one's, the whole of one's spirit. And he believed that art and beauty and symbolism and sensitivity, sensitivity to the environment can and should be incorporated into the um, design. So when people came to the fountains and drank from them, they would be sort of reminded to, to, uh, of, to exhibit kindness and generosity, simplicity, and sobriety. Now, to kind of sum this all up, the Wallace Fountains, you know, have been around now for almost 150 years. And one would think, how have they survived such a long time? Uh, well, they have because I think there's this... Um, this human uh, uh, connection to them. Besides, certainly people can get water, clean water now in Paris. Uh, there's hundreds of water fountains besides the Wallace Fountains all over Paris. Uh, tap water, clean water is in every building uh, on, uh, in the city. So why do they continue to survive? And why do they deserve protection? And I think it's because mankind needs to have tangible monuments and objects that express the essential things of life, those things that the, you know, the little prince tells us are invisible to the eyes. Uh, we need the fountains because we need them to remind us to be kind and generous, to look to simple truths and to approach life with sobriety so that we can do our best. Right. I mean, this, uh, this approach, uh, um, which, you, which is kind of an all-encompassing 
understanding of urban public infrastructure is is really noteworthy because we're talking about um, I mean you mentioned right you mentioned the the sidewalks and the fountains functioning together as a kind of social leveler that brings all uh, uh, aspects uh, all uh, le layers of society uh, together right so so infrastructure has a pragmatic um, has a pragmatic effect, has a pragmatic uh, just a, a reason for for existing in that it uh, uh, makes certain tasks of life um, possible or easier. But at the same time, it has a social dimension in that it brings uh, uh, communities together, different communities together. And now on top of that, I think you're contributing a very, very important uh, uh, um, uh, another dimension to the to the idea of infrastructure and this is a sort of the infrastructure of public uh, um, morality or public psychology if you will in a way it, that infrastructure does not just uh, serve physical and pragmatic needs but that infrastructure also um, it contributes in a way or can contribute if it is designed and if it is conceived of properly it can also contribute to the social uh, cohesion uh, of a society, uh, of a community, of an urban community, in terms of in terms of its values, in, in terms of its uh, uh, outlook uh, uh, on uh, on the world, uh, and uh, on uh, on on questions concerning lifestyle and morality. So, in that sense, um, again, uh, expanding on the on the idea of uh, of infrastructure in a in a very very interesting direction. Um, you have mentioned that the that the that the Wallace Fountains are around. Is still around, have been around for about 150 years now. Um, well, we are in the middle, as you as you as you mentioned at the beginning, of a new uh, public health uh, crisis in Paris at the moment, the COVID-19 crisis pandemic. Um, do you think that this pandemic will have some kind of specific effect regarding the Wallace Fountains themselves? Well, when life returns to normal, whatever that's going to be, no one is going to be able to really predict how humans are going to behave. So I think the impact of the lockdown will be more psychological and emotional than it will be physical as it was in the during, following the siege. But once people are free to move about, will they feel comfortable using public amenities like the fountains or like... Uh, Playground equipment uh, and uh, for children. Public will they sit on public benches or park chairs, uh, or will people begin to feel that every service surface that was originally designed for common use uh, is now a repository for germs, and they're going to avoid uh, utilizing uh, the things that are in the, an urban environment for uh, public use for the use of everyone. So out, and even now, you know, 150 years after uh, the Wallace Fountains were put in place and the water system has been um, restored, there's still great skepticism that remains about how clean is the real water of Paris? How clean is its water supply? When I've been out talking to people about the fountains in Paris, they say, oh, can you drink the water? Is it safe? And yeah. I know that the Eau de Paris, which is the... Uh, the entity responsible for delivering the water uh, to uh, the people of Paris, uh, they have been battling a very long and hard uh, process of trying to uh, get people to uh, 
believe that the Paris drinking water is clean, uh, that you're not going to get sick of it, uh, sick from it. So uh, will the pandemic uh, add to these misconceptions and further discourage people from using the fountains or from drinking tap water? I don't know, because uh, it's sort of an irrational fear even before the pandemic. Uh, will the pandemic add to that fear in the future? So that's one. And that's another issue. And then finally, the environment uh, as a result of this pandemic has sort of received a break from the human assault on it uh, during this lockdown period. But will Parisians become more environmentally conscious uh, once um, the lockdown is over, once they're free to, to, to move about again? Uh, will they uh, start buying uh, permanent water bottles and going to the fountains uh, to uh, get their water or filling them from tap water and thus avoid uh, buying water and throw away plastic uh, bottles, which is so detrimental to the future. So uh, the, the environmental issues surrounding the fountains will also um, be uh, impacted in such a way that could be very positive or could, uh, you know, uh, not work uh, out as we'd hoped. Yeah. And, uh, and as, you, as you were saying, I mean, it, it really uh, depends very heavily on uh, attitudes, on people's attitudes, as you were saying, and uh, specifically people's attitudes towards the public sphere, right? I mean, um, when, when people mistrust uh, something like the public supply of water or, or some, some, some other aspect of public infrastructure, in a way it also points to the atomization or the, the disintegration of the of the urban community of the of the of the people living together and people sharing the urban space um, if the only thing that you regard as safe is the thing that you own privately that you've that you've bought privately and that 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 only serves you yourself and you regard everything that is accessible to the public and shared by the public as unsafe and somehow something to be avoided this is not just a precaution that Except uh, that sort of somehow somehow uh, affects your your physical life, but it also ex uh, uh, it also affects the social life uh, all, uh, of the urban. Uh, uh, of the urban settlement of the of the urban fabric. So in that sense, I think uh, you're absolutely right. And uh, one of the one of the big jobs of uh, public infrastructure, or 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 or, or uh, the big one of the big challenges of uh, of public infra infrastructure providers is again to imbue these public services, to imbue these uh, uh, components of public infrastructure with a sense of community, with a sense that people are coming together here, that it is not something to be feared, but that it is something to be embraced in the sense that it brings uh, the community uh, uh, together. Um, anyway, I don't want to. I don't want to go too far into 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 what uh, kinds of lessons can be learned uh, from uh, Wallace's approach and from the Wallace Fountains as we recover. Uh, from the COVID-19 crisis and the lockdown, because I'm sure that you also have maybe some final words that you would like to contribute on that topic. What do you think the Wallace Fountains and the approach of Richard Wallace can teach us today uh, uh, as, we, as we struggle to, uh, to cope uh, with the developments in our, in our, in our, current, uh, in our current health crisis environment? Well, you know, of course, we don't know yet what great needs will present themselves as a result of the pandemic and the lockdown. Uh, we do know that there will be human needs. Every crisis, you know, has uh, uh, an impact uh, that's detrimental in some ways. Uh, 
So whether um, they will be, uh, these needs will be fundamentally essential, as the need for clean drinking water was following the siege, uh, or more related to mental health issues, uh, this all remains to be seen. But whatever they are, we should use the example of the Wallace Fountains as, as sort of a model for finding solutions to meeting those human needs in, a, in an urban environment. Uh, we need to take uh, this kind of holistic approach to uh, problem solving, just as uh, Richard Wallace did with his fountains. He incorporated new technology and industrial advances to fashion the fountains. He was sensitive to the environment, wanting them to blend in and to enhance their surroundings, as well as to be appreciated for the beauty. He designed them to be works of art with a nod to history and uh, mythology and to impart symbolism so that fountains themselves could quench the thirst of the spirit as well as it quenched the thirst for the body. From, and he made them monumental to stand out and to remind us of our responsibilities as human beings to others. Uh, they also, I think, were philosophically egalitarian uh, on the sidewalks, on small public places throughout Paris, serving the rich and the poor equally. So Richard, the, the Wallace Fountains truly beautify the city in a typical Parisian way. They serve our practical need for drinking water, but with style and artistry, symbolism, a nod to the past and a sense of monumentality. Uh, we know, for example, I think, uh, that uh, many will be economically disadvantaged by this, this current crisis. But, but their human needs will probably not be met if we just give them a box of food and a rent voucher. We also must do something to restore their dignity and their optimism and their hope uh, for the future. Uh, their psychological and their spiritual side also needs to be part of what solutions might go forward. And... Uh, I truly believe uh, as well that the enormously rich must also take a signal from Richard Wallace and step up to use some of their vast wealth for the common good in very truly meaningful ways. In essence, the public and private sectors should join together uh, to find solutions to these human needs that will emerge from the pandemic and to give our communities around the world uh, the equivalent of Wallace family as we move forward into what is likely to be a very different world. Uh, thank you, Barbara. I mean, this is a, I, 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 th I think this is a really, really good way to sum up uh, um, uh, the, gist, uh, the gist of this interview, which is basically that, well, firstly, um, we do need, as you, as you put it so well, we do need a holistic approach to public infrastructure, an approach that doesn't just uh, consider pragmatic needs, but also, as you, as you put it, needs of the spirit, needs of the soul. Um, we do need to start reimagining conceiving cities as places that bring people together and not just as places that segregate people according to their income status, according to their wealth, etc., etc. And I completely agree with you that we are not seeing enough in the way of forward-looking, hope-inducing 
projects to take us not just out of the current crisis and restore some kind of status quo that we had going on before that, but to take us into some kind of more hopeful, into some kind of more optimistic future going forward. So uh, uh, isn't it amazing how much uh, uh, can actually be gleaned uh, by something uh, that seems so ubiquitous and so kind of like uh, almost goes unnoticed these days as the Wallace Fountain standing around on uh, on uh, on the cities on the on the streets of Paris. So thank you, Barbara, so much uh, for taking the time to be with us today and to 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 go into such depth about all the different implications of the Wallace Fountains. Well, thank you, David, for having me. And I hope that once this lockdown is over and people are free to walk the sidewalks again, uh, that if they encounter a Wallace Fountain, they will drink deeply from it yeah. and also for, uh, you know, quench, the, quench their thirst, uh, body, mind and spirit and come to appreciate how important they are to the heritage of Paris and the, the future. Well, I, for one, can attest uh, personally that I did a drink from the Wallace Fountains during the lockdown, and uh, uh, it has been a couple of weeks, so I am absolutely fine. So I don't think that there is anything to worry about regarding uh, the Wallace Fountains and uh, the hygienic aspects of their design. They should definitely be continued to uh, continue to be utilized. In any case, that brings us uh, to the end of yet another Picked Voices. Thank you all uh, to our listeners for tuning in, and we hope to challenge you again with a different guest very soon. Of course, our biggest hope, uh, as Barbara put it, remains to come face-to-face -face with you again in the physical world at one of our events going forward from here. And until that can happen, stay healthy and safe. Thank you and goodbye.